The following podcast is part of a certified educational activity titled Assessing the Impact of Therapeutic Advances in Small Cell Lung Cancer, Instilling New Hope and Moving in Leaps and Bounds Towards Better Outcomes. Access the entire activity and complete the post-test at peerview.com forward slash VDU 860. Downloadable slides and practice aids are also available. So thank you all for joining us. Uh, I know this is a, kind of a wild time, so this new hybrid model, um, but it is, it is wonderful to see each of you that is here in person, and welcome to everyone who's joining us uh, online. Uh, I'm excited today. We're going to talk about small cell lung cancer. We'll cover an array of topics, and I have some exceptional colleagues uh, joining me up here. So we'll start out, uh, Dr. Tiziana Leo, I'll let you introduce yourself. Good evening, everyone. I'm Tiziana Leal. I'm a medical oncologist, and I specialize in thoracic oncology. I'm an associate professor and director of the Medical Thoracic Oncology Program at Winship Cancer Institute of Emory University. Very happy to be here today to have a discussion about small cell lung cancer and treatment advances. And Dr. Nish Mahindra, probably the closest drive, at least for yeah. us up here. <laughs> Let you introduce yourself. Hi, I'm uh, Nisha Mohindra. I, too, am a thoracic medical oncologist here at Northwestern. Uh, I'm an associate professor and also manage our, uh, both our inpatient and outpatient oncology th thoracic units. Welcome back to Chicago, guys. <laughs> Thank you. And I'm Dr. Jacob Sands. I am a thoracic medical oncologist at Dana-Farber, where I lead our small cell lung cancer program. So it is exciting to get to join all of you and talk about small cell lung cancer. Um, so I'll just maybe briefly, rather than going through this uh, slide, we're essentially going to start with talking about in the first line, uh, and then we'll go into second line and beyond, and then some of the novel treatments uh, that, uh, and ongoing studies. So to start out with, the diagnosis of small cell lung cancer. Um, so this is uh, a slide on the right uh, uh, for just a general depiction of small cell lung cancer. Uh, generally speaking, the majority of these do express TTF1 uh, on IHC stains. That is not absolutely necessary, but it is commonly seen. And, and most do express neuroendocrine differentiation. Of course, that's the classic for uh, diagnosing small cell, synaptophysin, chromogranin, CD56. Small cell lung cancer has a high mitotic rate. This is a very transcriptionally active cancer that, that leads to rapid disease progression. Um, as far as historical context, you know, I often uh, will show this, this slide here with just this steep slope. I had an attending in fellowship who would, during journal clubs, see some, a slide like this from the back of the room. And his definition of a terrible prognosis was the fact that that slope is not skiable. And unfortunately, for a lot of small cell lung cancer, these slopes are not really skiable because there's such rapid drop-off. Now, cisplatinotoposide, uh, or now carboplatinotoposide, these are regimens that, that really come from the 70s. This has been a standard of care for a very long time, uh, although really it wasn't established until a couple decades later. Of course, there was a, a time of CAV versus platinumotoposide consideration, although uh, platinumotoposide did become uh, very uh, across the board the standard of care until more recently. Uh, response rates are pretty high with platinumotoposide. Often patients come in even when admitted to the hospital with rapidly progressive symptoms. Uh, I certainly see plenty of people that end up with a new oxygen requirement 
that once starting platinum etoposide in patient uh, have a rapid enough response that they actually, actually end up leaving the hospital without needing oxygen. So we certainly see uh, a rapid improvement in symptoms when starting treatment. That being said, we've certainly built upon that, and we'll, and we'll get to that. Now, there's the advances that we've seen in non-small cell lung cancer and other fields that have really been so plentiful over the last decade, we, we've really only recently started making some progress in small cell lung cancer during, uh, during that time frame. And I think there are a lot of barriers, really, to advances in small cell lung cancer. Of course, these are patients often with a very extensive smoking history and, therefore, multiple comorbid comorbidities. Uh, the d disease itself is rapidly progressive, and that can make it more difficult to enroll to clinical trials when patients really need to start treatment very quickly. This is certainly a, a discussion point we have in first-line clinical trials setting, where if patients need to go on to the trial before they start any treatment whatsoever, that can be a limiting factor. And so in some cases, uh, I really encourage to allow for a single cycle of treatment before then enrolling, because then we actually can, can get more people on. The other thing is that if a trial requires biopsy, a fresh tumor biopsy prior to treatment, which, which certainly we, we see in, in various cancers where there are certain stains or other testing that you want done, when enrolling to a study in small cell lung cancer, that's not really feasible because patients often need to go on very quickly. Uh, and so we've had limited tissue. We've had limited opportunity for enrolling to studies uh, on... Um, uh, and this has all really added up to a more challenging setting. I'll just briefly touch on this, because TMB is not currently really part of the paradigm for small cell lung cancer, but you do see that it is more to the right there as far as the diagnoses with a higher tumor mutational burden, uh, melanoma really being on the far right, and melanoma really being the starting point for a lot of our immunotherapy advances uh, that have come down the line. And then uh, squamous cell and adenocarcinoma, of course, coming next. Small cell lung cancer with a pretty uh, significant uh, tumor mutational burden, um, although um, that, that becomes more relevant, particularly in the setting of immunotherapies, uh, although TMB is not really a defining biomarker for that within small cell. As far as the common genomic alterations for small cell, P53 and RB1 have similar functions in that the two of them really serve as breaks uh, in some way for stopping um, the replication process to allow for repair of the DNA. And so it helps prevent uh, passing on these, these mutations that, that occur in the process. Um, and so when those are not functioning, it's essentially like the breaks not functioning. MYC, in some ways, is more like the gas pedal. MYC proteins activate the expression of genes enabling proliferation, therefore moving the process forward faster. And this is, in fact, amplified in about 20% of small cell lung cancers. So in that case, it's really like the brakes being broken and the gas pedal being pushed down. Now, although I've said, uh, presented the fact that we've had multiple uh, reasons uh, or challenges for advances in the field, we have more recently started seeing real advances. And so we're coming into what I think is an exciting time academically for small cell. Of course, nobody wants to be uh, in a situation where they need these advances. Uh, but academically, this is an exciting time in, in that we are seeing advances, and we're going to touch on those. So we'll get into first-line therapy in a moment, and then that'll follow with second-line treatment. Um, and there are an array of really drugs to discuss in the second line and beyond. Now, we're going to start out with a case 
And so I'll go through this. 65-year-old patient with a past medical history of hypertension, hyperlipidemia, so common uh, kinds of comorbidities, 60-pack year smoking history, presented with a persistent cough and generalized fatigue, had an ECOG performance status of 1. Initially, a chest X-ray showed a mass, and of course, a CT scan follow-up then showed both a 4-centimeter uh, left upper lobe mass along with left hilar lymphadenopathy, bronchoscopy, diagnosis of small cell lung cancer. That'd be a real curveball if the diagnosis wasn't. <laughs> so diagnosis, small cell lung cancer. Uh, MRI was negative. PET CT done for staging uh, revealed multiple FDG avid hepatic metastases. So metastatic small cell lung cancer and now presents for further management. So first-line therapy, I will, uh, I think, yes, we'll pass it off to my colleague, Tiziana. Okay, and we'll talk about, I think, some of the nuances of that prior question as we review the data for both Empower 133 as well as the Caspian study. So let's start with the Empower 133. This was a phase three study investigating uh, atezolizumab, a PDL1 inhibitor in combination with our standard chemotherapy backbone in patients with untreated extensive stage small cell lung cancer. So in this uh, study, patients had to have measurable disease, good performance status, and in this study, they did not allow um, untreated uh, asymptomatic brain mets. So patients had to have treated asymptomatic brain mets. 403 patients were enrolled and randomized one-to-one to atezolizumab, the PDL1 inhibitor in combination with our standard chemotherapy backbone, carboplatin and atoposide, followed by atezolizumab maintenance. In the control arm, patients received placebo and had the combination of carboplatin and atoposide followed by placebo maintenance. So in this study, patients were not allowed to receive cisplatin. In this study, PCI was per local standard of care and thoracic radiation was not permitted on either one of the arms. The co-primary endpoints included overall survival and investigator-assessed progression-free survival, and key secondary endpoints were overall response rate, duration of response, and safety. So here are the results of the Empower 133. Now, with further follow-up that we've published in JCO, the median follow-up is 22.9 months, demonstrating the sustained benefit with the addition of atezolizumab to chemotherapy for patients with treatment-naive extensive-stage small cell lung cancer. The median overall survival is 12.3 months versus 10.3 months with a hazard ratio of 0.76. And we see here with further follow-up, the OS rate at 18 months, uh, 34% versus 21% which when you think about the historical controls, actually this is favorable for both arms. But certainly here you see a modest benefit, a subset of patients really deriving benefit from this strategy. In terms of safety results, we've also seen with further follow-up, no significant safety signals. The combination of chemo plus immunotherapy with atezolizumab has been well tolerated. The majority of the side effects that we see are what we see with the standard chemotherapy backbone and myelosuppression. Um, And we do see some immune-related adverse events in all grades, 39.9% in atezolizumab. We saw 24.5% in placebo. Keep in mind, this was actually a double-blind study 
Um, so I think obviously that's why you see immune-related AEs in the placebo arm and low rates of treatment discontinuation and certainly low rates of treatment-related deaths. And in terms of the median number of doses received uh, for both arms in terms of the chemotherapy, the dose intensity was the same for both treatment groups with a median number of doses of atezolizumab of seven. Now let's move on to the Caspian study. This is another study that led to approval of dervalumab and power led to the approval of atezolizumab. This is another PDL1 inhibitor. Similar study design with some differences here. Uh, patients with treatment naive, extensive stage small cell lung cancer with good performance status were enrolled in this study. It did allow asymptomatic or treated in stable brain mets. 805 patients were randomized one to one to one to the dervalumab plus chemotherapy arm. In the derva plus chemo arm here, it did allow for cisplatin or carboplatin, although the majority of patients did receive carboplatin here, followed by dervalumab maintenance in this arm. The control arm was EP, which is standard chemotherapy backbone, and they were, in this uh, arm, allowed to receive up to six cycles. Um, and PCI was optional in the standard of care arm, however not permitted in the experimental arms. There's a third arm, which is the top arm, which investigated tremolumumab, a CTLA-4 inhibitor, in combination with Derva plus EP for four cycles. And in the experimental arms, patients went on to receive maintenance dervalumab until progression. None of the arms were allowed to receive thoracic radiation. The primary endpoint here is overall survival. Secondary endpoints included progression-free survival, overall response rate, safety and tolerability, and patient-reported outcomes. And here we have the results of the phase three Caspian study. We now have a three-year overall survival update. And some of sort of the highlights of these results that we know are that the combination of DERVA plus chemotherapy led to improved overall survival in patients with untreated uh, extensive stage small cell lung cancer. You can see there the median OS for DERVA plus EP is 12.9 months versus 10.5 months. And the hazard ratio here is 0.75. Now, the addition of tremolumumab, the CTLA-4 inhibitor, did not lead to significant improvement in overall survival and was associated with more toxicity. You see the three curves there in terms of overall survival showing a numerical sort of comparable outcome with the derva plus tremi plus CP, but that was not statistically significant. And certainly the higher rates of toxicity, including grade five toxicities, really have led this combination to not um, be something that we use in clinical practice and certainly not approved. So CTLA-4 inhibitors in this setting at this time remain investigational. And here we have the three-year overall survival update, and this is the longest follow-up we have from these frontline studies. We have a median follow-up here of 39.4 months, and you see here at the 36-month uh, probability of OS superior in the DERVA plus CP arm of 17.6% versus 5.8%. Hazard ratio here remains uh, quite significant with 0.71 as is shown here. I think one interesting thing about all of these studies uh, that you'll note is that we really don't have any predictive biomarkers for selecting patients who are most likely to benefit from this strategy of immunotherapy plus chemo. We've looked at, you know, TMB, we've looked at blood TMB, we've looked at PDL1. None of these have been predictive of benefit, so these are really approved for all comer population. 
And similarly, in terms of the safety results in the Caspian study, the addition of dervalumab to chemotherapy was well tolerated with um, overall in terms of the immune-related AEs. The experience has been what we would expect for the combination with immune-related AEs of all grades, 36% um, in the Derva plus Tremi plus EP, 20% in the Derva plus EP, and then in the EP, 2.6%. In terms of AEs leading to death, and this is where we see more toxicity with the DERVA plus TREMI plus CP, 10.2% versus 4.9% in DERVA plus CP. So again, I think the toxicities here of TREMI really outweigh any potential benefit and no overall survival benefit at this time. So not something that we're using, but certainly DERVA plus CP, uh, well-tolerated regimen. So what we see here is our new standard of care for frontline treatment for patients with extensive stage small cell lung cancer. We have two approvals, uh, one based on Empower 133 with atezolizumab in combination with chemotherapy, improving overall survival with manageable side effects. And then subsequently, we also had approval of dervalumab uh, based on the Caspian data in combination with chemotherapy, improving overall survival without toxicity. Um, and certainly TREMI plus derva plus chemo, not prolonging survival in a statistically significant manner, so not approved and not standard of care. We have two other trials that have also sort of supported the use of immunotherapy in the front line. One of them was combination of pembrolizumab with chemotherapy in a phase three setting, the Keynote 604 data, which showed similar survival curves. Again, did not meet statistical significance, so not FDA approved, but certainly I think really establishing the use of IO in the front line and perhaps a backbone to use for future clinical trials as we build upon these results to really get better outcomes for our patients, as this is a modest improvement and further improvements are needed. And then we've also seen the data for NEVO plus chemo based on our ECOG-ACRIN study, EA5161, adding nivolumab to chemotherapy in a randomized phase two setting, also showing similar OS benefits as well as PFS benefits. So certainly uh, first-line chemo IO is here to stay. The challenges remain, who are the patients most likely to benefit from this strategy? Can we find predictive biomarkers for patients and really kind of define and outline the best treatment options? for patients in the frontline setting. So let's go back to our case. So just to, uh, rather than go through all of this, is essentially a patient who presented with um, ECOG-1 performance status, not much in the way of comorbidities, metastatic disease, four centimeters left upper lobe with hyalur adenopathy and uh, METs to the liver. So before we get into some of the immunotherapy stuff, let's start basics. Carboplatin versus cisplatin, do you have a strong preference about those? Uh, and then also we'll get into Atezo and Derva uh, as well, and whether there's a situation, whether you generally prefer one over the other, or if there are situations in which you might use uh, the opposite of your choice. Uh, either of you, please feel free to, to answer one or both of those. Nisha, do you want to start? Sure. Um... So for most of my patients, it depends on, on their performance status, especially with the carbosis decision. I often will use carbo um, up front if, you know, if I'm worried about their performance status. Thinking about the IO uh, partner, a lot of times, for me, I, I find that there is probably equipoise between the data. So I base it off of 
if there are some uh, potential clinical trials that we have that may play into what they could be eligible for next. And I think we'll talk about that at the end, our, our, our last section, some of the stuff that's coming up. I don't know, what, are you, what do you guys prefer? Yeah, in terms of the carboplatin, cisplatin, I think, you know, beyond the data that we saw here, I think a few points. We've seen data, um, and we've seen data from the VA cohort of patients comparing cisplatin to carboplatin. We've seen data in older patients comparing cisplatin to carboplatin. And sort of the bottom line is that it doesn't really improve overall survival if you use cisplatin over carboplatin, but we do see more toxicities with the cisplatin-based combination. So unless I have a really good reason to use cisplatin, which I find myself rarely actually seeing that in clinical practice, I really do prefer to use carboplatin in our patient population that is older, has more comorbidities. If there's no improvement in overall survival, you know, I don't think there's a great gain in that. But I think this question might be trying to go back to sort of the original data about which regimen has been investigated with cisplatin, that if you were to use cisplatin, would you then follow the data and sort of see what combination you would use? Now, that being said, I don't think that from an efficacy or a safety issue I would have concerns, but I think if you follow the data, you know, only one of the regimens really investigated the use of cisplatin, which was the Caspian data. However, even in that, you know, data set, the majority of patients did receive carboplatin. I think um, in terms of the two agents, I, I agree that the, the two agents and the two studies have a lot of similarities um, in terms of the gain and the magnitude of benefit. Um, certainly, I think it's, um, it's reassuring to see greater follow-up in the, the Dervalumab data. You know, it's, it's really nice to have that three-year overall survival data with the Caspian. Um, we also have some interesting data that was recently published with the Caspian data in JTO just uh, last month, I believe, um, showing sort of the BrainMet cohort uh, looking at the benefit of adding Dervalumab to chemotherapy in patients with or without BrainMets, showing you know similar magnitude of benefit, but also in an exploratory cohort, also showing sort of a, a delay or a prolongation to actually patients needing radiation or developing brain mets. So exploratory, but certainly interesting. I think if we had more data to kind of differentiate the two, it would be helpful. Um, but I think overall, putting it all together, I would say that both, I think, are acceptable in terms of using them in clinical practice. And I've used both, and I don't think there's any different in safety or tolerability either in clinical practice. So to summarize, what I hear you saying is that you prefer carboplatin and if you were using cisplatin, although technically that would require dervalumab based upon the data, you'd feel pretty comfortable swapping out a Tezo and Derva, and you think of these as fairly comparable. Yeah. I probably would follow the data and use cis-derva combination, but if, let's say, it wasn't formulary in my institution and I really wanted to use cisplatin yeah. for a reason, I would. Yeah, I feel very similar. I, th I think of carboplatin and cisplatin as being pretty comparable at this point. I think historically, these were thought there was a push for cisplatin over carboplatin, although in the metastatic setting, I think that's gotten less and less. There's an increasing preference for carboplatin, although some institutions I do still see have a preference for cisplatin. Uh, and as far as the tesonderva, I think of them as very, very comparable. Now, actually, you know, to that point, actually, what, we're going to get into some discussion of, of, of uh, Pembro and Nevo and other checkpoint inhibitor 
um, PD-1, PD-L1 inhibitors. Um, but just since we're in the first-line setting, um, you mentioned the uh, keynote study. Uh, of course, there's also been um, NEVO studies in that space. Um, you mentioned the curves look fairly similar. Of course, the FDA approval is a, is, is a Tezo and Derva. Do you think of these then as fairly similar drugs, or do you think of these as there being di big differences? You know, I mean, certainly Pembro and Neva are PD-1 inhibitors, but I do think that when you put the curves and obviously doing the cross-trial comparison with all of its caveats, you know, the curves look very similar in terms of OS as well as PFS, and the numbers are very similar. You know, there's differences in study design, there's difference in patient population, so they're not comparable, um, you know, perfectly, but I would say that Although Pembro and Nevo don't have FDA approval on frontline, and I wouldn't use it with a standard chemotherapy backbone, as we're developing new clinical trials, investigating new agents with a backbone of combination of chemo IO, I'd feel very comfortable using Pembro or Nevo as a standard backbone for further investigation. Yeah. Agree. Um, so uh, so the, the question actually comes up. So maybe more specifically, is there anything that would make you choose a Tezo or Derva? Nisha, do you want to start with that? Do you, is there anything that would make you choose one over the other? You know, I, I agree with uh, Dr. Leal. There is, I guess, longer follow-up data from Caspian, but, um, you know, I, I have not found that I, in practice, I'm choosing based off of that. I, I, like I said, there are some interesting trials where certain backbones are part of the, the trial. And so that's how we're using our decision uh, making. I, that's how we're doing our decisions at our institution. But, and I think the CNS data is intriguing, but you know, I, I have not had a strong preference to either agent. And I would agree. I mean, I, I find myself kind of using them interchangeably. And I do think one thing about Empower, as you saw in the FDA approvals, it was approved first. So I think there's something to say about having that first approval, patterns of care where people started using, you know, carbo-atopa-tezo for almost a year before Derva finally got approved. So I think a lot of people just were very comfortable with, hey, this is the regimen that I'm using. I'm you know, comfortable with the dosing strategy and I know kind of what to do with this regimen. And so I think, you know, the Empire 133 regimen certainly had the advantage of that initial and first approval and sort of establishing that pattern of care for a lot of clinicians around the country. So I do think that it does have that advan advantage, which is an important one. So this is an interesting question, uh, and this is more for the pathologists maybe, but uh, the question is, could you elaborate further on the diagnosis of small cell lung cancer? Pathologists often report suggestive of or consistent with high-grade neuroendocrine carcinoma uh, without necessarily specifying, how do I know if this is small cell, large cell neuroendocrine, high-grade carcinoma, or something else? Um, and, you know, I mean, uh, this is obviously something that really ends up being a discussion with the pathologist. On some level, I guess maybe the question to pull from this is a large cell neuroendocrine. This is, you know, a related topic maybe, but we can touch on this. So large cell neuroendocrine, there's kind of a spectrum of what you can do in, in that. I know this topic we're discussing is really more classic small cell, but, you know, this is something that comes up. In that setting, um, how do each of you consider treating that, and, and what's your thought process through that? 
And, you know, I, I, I go back and I call the pathologist and we'll have a discussion. <laughs> you know, it depends on the size of the sample. One of the things that you talked about is a lot of times when we get a diagnosis of small cell, we have a very sick patient, the sample is very limited, and the pathologist has limited tissue to work with. That tissue may, may have a lot of crush artifact. This is a high-grade tumor. There's a lot of necrotic cells. You know, typically, I think for them to call it small cell, they kind of want to have that perfect scenario with the TTF1 positive, CD56, synaptophysin, chromogranin. And so if some of those things are missing and it looks like a high-grade tumor and you have limited tissue, you know, they will tend to call it high-grade neuroendocrine carcinoma. And if you give them enough clinical context, you know, you can kind of say, can we put it into clinical context and call it small cell? Um, and then, you know, we have that discussion in our multi-D, you know, thoracic groups, and then we can finally get a, a diagnosis of small cell. But I would say if I, if I have a diagnosis of high-grade neuroendocrine carcinoma in the correct, or, you know, the clinical scenario that fits with small cell lung cancer, I'm going to treat it as small cell lung cancer. Now, the large cell diagnosis is a little bit different where, you know, you have this diagnosis of clearly the cells look different and they are calling them large cell neuroendocrine carcinoma. And certainly it falls into that spectrum of, of small cell um, and those patients a lot of the times are treated as if they have small cell, although they don't really behave like small cell. They don't have that rapid initial clinical response. You don't see the response rate of 60%. Um, they do behave differently. Uh, and I think there's still a lot of question in terms of the large cell neuroendocrine carcinoma population. Are these genomically different? And how do we treat these patients? But I think, you know, ultimately they end up getting treated uh, with chemo IO for the majority of the patients kind of like small cell, although they're not truly. Yeah, and, and I, I, that's kind of where I was leaning and asking the way that I asked that too, is, is that think if you have something that you can't differentiate um, uh, with the pathologist as large cell neuroendocrine or small cell, uh, uh, this becomes a morphologic question in some ways. Uh, but if it is something where the key 67 is high, where it's, it's a... Um, uh, there are multiple mitoses in the field, um, then I'm more inclined to treat that like small cell anyway. And sometimes deciphering that isn't necessarily uh, extremely important in the initial therapy. Um, but, uh, but of course, at the same time, on the spectrum, then if you have a large cell neurochrona that does not have a lot of mitoses, that doesn't appear, uh, that doesn't have other factors of it that are more consistent with a, an, an aggressive small cell diagnosis, then of course you can consider non-small cell therapies. Um, all right, so now this is the discussion we've kind of already started, really. Another interesting question that came up um, is around, well, it says radiation for metastasis. Um, now, I, th that's a broad statement. I'm not sure. Uh, is, whoever asked that, please feel free to clarify if we don't cover this. Um, we're going to get into some second-line discussion. Um, and where I'm going to take this question then is, let's say you give chemo plus uh, PD-L1 inhibitor, and now you have general disease control, but you have one or two sites of progression with ongoing control otherwise. Nisha, what, would you consider radiation in that case? Is there, is there a scenario where you would do radiation for one of these patients while continuing the checkpoint inhibitor, or is progression progression? You know, I think it's an interesting question because there are patients, and it's a handful, where they've had a prolonged time on IO in the maintenance setting and then will have a lesion come up, 
And I think it depends. In that case, I have used radiation and continued IO with a very short interval of follow-up. Again, making sure I'm not missing, you know, fulminant progression. But I, I think if they've had some time on IO away from the platinum, um, I, I have used that strategy. Have you guys? Yeah, I'll say, I, especially if it's in brain in someone who has not gotten whole brain radiation and now they have one or two sites in brain. I actually have a patient um, that uh, I treated on um, a Tezo, a chemo Tezo, and was on a Tezo for three years uh, with multiple uh, instances of some brain mets that were treated with SRS. Um, but, but eventually, complete control, um, unfortunately then developed an early stage pancreatic cancer. Um, to which I told the, the pancreatic team, hey, treat her like she doesn't have small cell because it's been three years of control. She actually got neoadjuvant treatment for that, got a Whipple, um, and has been doing well now for, for a while. Um, so hopefully that will persist. But, you know, the, we see some of these people with just magical responses to checkpoint inhibitors with ongoing years of control. And so I, I'm sure you have some outliers uh, uh, like that, hopefully without the pancreatic cancer uh, scenario, but, um, but years of control. Um, that's particularly in brain. But I would do that even if it was like a chest wall or, or a, a adrenal uh, progression with otherwise multiple sites that are clearly under control. I would, I would consider that as well. Um, all right. Uh, let's see. Did I have... I, I... Oh, um... Well, maybe just a, a brief point. Um, after completing the chemo, so four, six cycles, um, I see six commonly done, which is why I raised the question. The trials were obviously four. Uh, and, um, and then the dosing of a Tezo or Derva in the maintenance setting, what is your frequency of that? So for the number of cycles, I go with four. Yeah. Um, so I... You know, don't think there's really additional benefit for six, certainly increased toxicity, um, and no real data to support in terms of overall survival. I think we had this really old dogma of, okay, do, four, do two cycles beyond your best response. And so I think people at the time when we didn't have other options just felt like more chemo was better. The reality of it is I don't think that's really the case in small cell. So I tend to do four cycles as my routine. Um, in terms of the maintenance strategy, uh, I do a Tezo every three weeks. I know we can, have the, we can use every four, um, but I generally just continue on every three. If there is a reason that a patient, you know, is, it's significant for them to have that, you know, interval of four, I, I would do a Tezo every four. And with Derva, I go with every four Derva uh, when I use Dervalumab. Yeah, I have a similar approach um, I usually will stop at four cycles, and then same with Derva, I try to do the every four-week dose, um, and it has always leave it up to patient preference. And I, I think these came up a lot, certainly with COVID, and trying to think through frequency of, of visits and a lot of shared decision-making in terms of um, how to look at how often. Yeah, um... Uh, yeah, the, the, I think especially in the initial waves of COVID, I mean, obviously COVID is still uh, around, but it's not like in that initial wave that, that um, we were really trying to reduce the, the visits. 
Um, another question uh, is, um, so essentially around the goal, uh, the, what is the treatment goal for small cell lung cancer? Are you trying to improve survival, reduce side effects, improve quality of life? Um, there's a follow-up to this and asking about limited stage and extensive stage. Maybe we'll touch on limited stage in a moment. So I'll, I'll, we'll, we can introduce that in the first-line setting uh, discussion here. Uh, but what's your goal in treatment? When you sit down with a patient and you're going over your initial counseling, uh, what, what are the goals that, that come up in that discussion? I mean, certainly for extensive stage, the goals would be I ideally that you're reducing symptom burden and prolonging survival. Um, I think small cell is such a symptomatic disease and, and can progress quite fast. So I am hoping for, for both. Yeah, and I, I do have that initial discussion with the patient and their family and kind of try to meet them where they're at in terms of how much information are they seeking, what kind of sort of feedback they're giving me in terms of how much do they really want to know at that initial visit. Um, but it is, it's a scary discussion because, you know, having stage four lung cancer, they know it's really serious. But having, you know, extensive stage small cell lung cancer and saying this regimen provides a median survival of 12.9 months and long-term survivors in Empire 133 are defined as 18 months, that's very scary to hear. And, you know, I just had a conversation yesterday with a family member who's a physician, and she said, so what are the chances of my uncle being alive at five years of small cell lung cancer? And I said, well, the longest follow-up we have is three-year overall survival data, and that's 17%. And she said, wait, do you mean 70? I said, no, 17. And that was shocking to her as a physician. And so I think it's really shocking to people who are going through this and, and somewhat discouraging. But I think certainly prolonging overall survival, focusing on the fact that you get rapid clinical benefit, that you can improve quality of life for the time that that person is living, and certainly that there is a gain in survival and that gain, we wish it was longer. And there are some people who are outliers that we've seen. Um, and I think there's room for optimism within sort of the treatment and the goals of care, but it's very important to outline that the goals are palliative and that we really have to work together every step of the way to make decisions together about what is um, in line with that person's goal in their life and their care and the family getting involved in it too. Yeah, I think your initial statement it really hits for me the most is that um, reading how much they want to know. And that's, I think, a nuance to oncology that I didn't really fully appreciate until being in oncology, uh, is that what patients are able to hear at any given point, is, it varies from person to person. And, and you have to be really careful not to just shut them off, where their minds just start spinning and they no longer hear what you're saying anymore. And that is a fine line, and it's different for, for each patient. And I'm sure uh, those in the audience understand that. We all uh, experience that in our own ways. But I think that's I mean, I'll, I'll resist the urge to dive more into that topic because I actually think that that's one of the most important in oncology is how we interact with these with, with patients and, and educate them. Uh, but I will resist the urge so that we can can cover small cell. I know I think for each of us, that's our own journey within the field itself is uh, gaining and understanding ourselves of how best to interact with patients. Um, and, and the one other thing I'll say is that I think 
in small cell lung cancer especially, it's something that all of medicine tends to know of as a terrible diagnosis. And so patients often come in having been told essentially that they're going to die soon in, you know, however that's stated. Uh, And so I often find that with patients I'm having to really take a little more time to help get them their feet on the ground a bit, which is frankly impossible, Uh, but enough to, to, to carry on in some way. And I do talk about the percent, you know, that 17%. That is a, a horribly low number from what we want, yet it is also better than them just hearing the medians and saying, hey, there are patients that have years of control. That is, that is uh, uh, unfortunately a fraction of individuals, but that's an important thing to be aware of. Maybe just for the sake of time, I'll just mention, you know, limited stage, uh, it, it, it asks for that. I think limited stage, the goal is cure. So we're willing to push people through more. Extensive stage, really the goal is extended quality of life. I find a lot of patients come in and really specify, hey, I don't want to live longer. I, w- I just want to have a better quality of life. And in some cases, I find that patients, um, and frankly, others in medicine, have an impression that chemotherapy or cancer treatment destroys people's quality of life but makes them live longer, which sounds like the most awful thing, uh, frankly, that our treatments are really to prolong quality of life, and therefore the side effect profiles are extremely important. And therefore, when we're talking about maintenance therapy with Atezo and Derva, which both have very favorable side effect profiles, um, that really is, is a win. Um, okay, so, uh, so the case continues. Now, they've gone through first-line therapy, chemo plus Atezo, on Atezo maintenance, Five months later, scans show multiple new bone mets. Performance status is preserved, so still ECOG-1. So now we're talking about second-line setting after a five-month, we'll call it a five-month chemotherapy-free interval on maintenance atezolizumab. So I'll kick us off in this. So platinum doublet rechallenge versus topotecan. This was a study. That, and now, this one was, in fairness, in patients with a chemotherapy-free interval of at least three months. And in Europe, that's more common, uh, whereas in the U.S., we tend to use six-month chemotherapy-free interval as a time point uh, where uh, we would then give platinum doublet rechallenge. So in this uh, platinum doublet versus topotecan, you can see the progression-free survival looked a little better with uh, platinum doublet, although overall survival was really no different between the two. Um, uh, okay. Well, the comment I was going to make, I'll come back to later. So lurbanectidin um, is a, a newer agent. This is a, was approved in the second line after a basket trial with 105 patients. Uh, the mechanism of action of um, lurbanectidin is, uh, it, it has a few different, and I can't quite see the details. I don't know if you can. Um, but essentially, it, it ends up um, blocking transcription. It also has an impact in the tumor microenvironment uh, with tumor-associated macrophages. Um, and now, tumor-associated macrophages, it seemed like it would be a good thing having, having macrophages within the tumor microenvironment, but these can actually lead to increased um, inflammatory markers, increased VEGF, and so essentially, these are factors that can enhance tumor growth within the microenvironment, and so therefore, uh, clearing of, of these tumor-associated macrophages, at least hypothetically, has an advantage uh, within that setting as well. Now, this was, as I mentioned, approved based upon this basket trial. So this was 105 patients in a single-arm trial in a second-line setting. It um, distinguished sensitive versus resistant disease at a 90-day chemotherapy-free interval cutoff point. And 
on the efficacy here, hopefully you can see this better on the screens and, and on the uh, uh, pads in front of you. Uh, but the progression-free survival, you can see that the median progression-free survival was three and a half months in all patients. Now, not surprisingly, the 90-day cutoff is really important in that those with a good response to initial chemotherapy or a longer response to initial platinum etoposide are more likely to benefit, therefore, from later um, uh, chemo agents. And so, not surprisingly, we see better outcomes within those with a chemotherapy funeral oval of greater than 90 days. Now, the medians are short, and the medians, I think, further stress the importance of ongoing clinical trials. But that being said, um, when we don't focus only on the medians, we, of course, do see patients with, with more durability to that. And you can see that the six-month progression-free survival in those with more than 90-day chemotherapy-free interval was um, actually around 44%. So you still have a good number of patients that have durability in responses. Um, and then you see overall survival there on the bottom. And the 12-month overall survival in those with a chemotherapy-free interval of at least 90 days uh, was 48%. Now, it, it, of course, looks worse in those with uh, progression at less than 90 days. And in fact... Um, uh, for those with a chemotherapy free interval of less than 45 days, so a truly resistant or refractory disease, uh, lurbanectinin is really the only FDA-approved drug. Uh, Topotecan was approved at 45 days and 60 days based upon PO and IV uh, uh, dosing. Now, the numbers are low, 2.6-month median progression-free survival, and only 19% of patients with ongoing disease control at uh, six months but in this population with a horribly poor prognosis, I guess I go back to my statement before about the importance at the time of diagnosis and saying uh, that 17% number at, uh, at years out is a low number, and that's a really this obviously is something uh, uh, that we need to improve upon. But for an individual with this horrible prognosis who has more than six months of ongoing disease control, that's extremely meaningful for those individuals. And so this drug is certainly providing some benefit to a fraction of patients, uh, obviously still a lot of work to do, uh, but, but uh, a portion of patients that are particularly benefiting. Now, you see on the right here the swimmer's plot uh, showing those with a chemotherapy funeral of greater than 90 days being the darker blue. And so not surprisingly, as we discussed before, the, the greater durability you see generally within those patients um, there is one that's, that's up there. I think that that's 9.1-month uh, um, uh, uh, without progression uh, in, in one of the more resistant patients. And the curves there on the left side, the scale is not the same on those, so the shape of the curves can be a little bit deceiving in that. As far as the safety... Thankfully, this, the, this was pretty well tolerated. As far as side effect profile for lurbanectidin, really the big thing is cytopenias. Now, you'll see that neutropenia was particularly prevalent, 21% grade 3 and 25% grade 4. I'll point out that in the trial, patients were not allowed to get prophylactic G, uh, GCSF. And so had they been getting that, presumably the numbers would be lower. Um, that being said, only 5% of patients had febrile neutropenia. But meaningfully, I'd say more so even than the neutropenia is the fatigue. 
And only 7% of patients had grade 3 fatigue. And at the time of initially looking at the data, I thought, well, man, that might just be more so people with small cell lung cancer, and it can be hard to tease apart uh, if they're not really having much of a response, if, in fact, the small cell is potentially causing that. But I've certainly I've used lurbinectin quite a bit now, and I've certainly seen some of this. Thankfully, it's been minimal. I've, I have a couple patients in which fatigue was really enough that we needed to stop the drug. One in particular where it was so severe uh, that really after a couple doses, uh, I had to stop the drug and couldn't give him another dose. Um, but that individual had rapidly progressive disease at the time of initiating lurbinectin, had a really nice radiographic response, and even after stopping the drug, had another four months of ongoing disease control before his uh, cancer did then unfortunately become rapidly progressive once again. So he really did have a very aggressive small cell and had very clear control despite being off the drug, but fatigue was something that required stopping the drug. Uh, now, before I get into this, this is a, a poster. This is from the abstract of a poster being presented here. But maybe it's really uh, first important to point out that there was the Atlantis trial, which was a combination of lurbinectin plus doxorubicin versus CAV or topotecan. And that trial was negative. Uh, and so the combination of doxorubicin and lurbinectin is not being uh, uh, further pursued. Um, the curves look very similar. Um, I guess the, the, the um, hopeful thing I could say is that similar to the prior topotecan study where we saw topotecan versus CAV, those curves looked, looked similar, but that was at a time where there really weren't treatments for small cell lung cancer, and so that did end up leading to an approval for topotecan. That being said, we have multiple treatments now, and so something that doesn't look uh, a negative trial is a negative trial. And so the combination is not being pursued. Um, one aspect of that as well to point out, though, is that lurbinectin was dosed at 2 milligrams per meter squared in the combination with doxorubicin, whereas the single-arm study, it's 3.2 milligrams per meter squared. The only reason I mention that is that when treating patients on the single-arm trial, it might be particularly meaningful with this drug to really try to maintain that dosing versus dose reductions. Um, now, this is a poster to be presented here at ASCO, and this is taking the patients in that Atlantis trial who had completed 10 cycles of combination lurbinectin plus doxorubicin that then went on to lurbinectin alone. So they really got full doxorubicin dosing. So this is really selecting out the individuals who are doing the best on, this, uh, on that arm. Interestingly, from within that, the 19 patients that had stable disease at the time of completing those 10 uh, cycles of combination, um, two of them went on to have a partial response on the lurbinectin alone at the increased dose, and one went on to have a CR. Now, these are small numbers, um, and uh, uh, again, this is a negative trial, so the combination itself is not something uh, that I would do or, or, or is recommended, but I think that speaks to at least questioning that dosing and, and a hypothesis that that dose uh, uh, really matters, that 2 versus the 3.2. Now, topotecan, there's both PO and IV. Uh, on the left side, PO, this is versus best supportive care. This was in patients with a borderline functional status, hence the best supportive care a control arm in a publication in 2006. 
Um, and on the right there is IV, and that's what I was referencing uh, a moment ago, CAV versus topotecan, but the topotecan was better tolerated and therefore led to approval. On the right side, though, the IV was at um, those with at least a chemotherapy-free interval of 60 days, and that is what the FDA approval says. On the left, the PO is 45-day chemotherapy-free interval. As far as the safety profile on this, uh, we do see certainly cytopenias uh, as well as fatigue uh, with, with um, uh, topotecan as well. Not surprisingly, oral does have a bit more as far as GI toxicities. And so these are the two um, FDA-approved regimens, but now we'll dive into other second-line uh, therapies and beyond. So there has been not a dearth of trying different agents in, in recurrent small cell, and we're going to highlight a couple of the agents ha that have been utilized. And again, we're going to see, even at this year's ASCO, some of these agents coming back in different combinations. So one of the agents is arenotecan. Uh, just for review, it's a topoisomerase 1 inhibitor, and topoisomerase is generally utilized to relieve the torsional tension that happens during DNA replication by creating sin single-stranded breaks. Um, so when you inhibit this, it prevents re-ligation of those cleaved sites and ultimately cell death. So this was initially studied back in the early 90s. Um, it was in, you know, the, one of the first trials was a small trial, 15 patients. Recurrent disease, so either after limited stage or extensive stage, and what we saw was that there were about 47% responses. You can see that some of them happened after limited stage, some after um, extensive stage. Medium duration of response was about two months, and OS was a little short, a little around six months. Another agent that has been utilized is paclitaxel. Uh, just as by, by way of background, it comes from the Pacific U bark. Um, what this agent does is it binds to microtubules and it promotes uh, microtubule assembly and kind of prevents the disassembly. And the reason this is important is that you need that dynamic microtubule movement for mitosis. So when you prevent um, disassembly, it prevents the later stages of mitosis. So this agent has been uh, evaluated in, in kind of two dosing regimens, uh, 175 milligrams per meter square every three weeks, as well as 80 milligrams per meter square weekly for six weeks on an eight-week cycle. Again, these are small numbers. Um, in the first dosing regimen, 21 evaluable patients, PR or response in 29% of patients. In the second dosing regimen, similarly, we, we saw a response around 24%. Uh, in that second trial, they kind of tried to break it up between you know, sensitive disease and refractory disease, and we saw a slightly higher numerical response rate in the sensitive disease than in the refractory disease, which is what we generally see uh, in practice as well. Temozolamide, again, we'll see uh, in ASCO this year, a, a presentation of this with a, in combination with a PARP inhibitor. So this is a prodrug that's rapidly converted into a, a metabolite that acts as an alkylating agent and leads to DNA damage and then apoptosis. 
It's important to note that um, temozolomide does have significant penetration of the blood-brain barrier and can be an important consideration when you're thinking about who to use certain drugs with. Again, this too was looked at in two dosing um, strategies, so we'll go through the first, which is uh, 75 milligrams per meter square per day, oral for days 1 through 21 of a 28-day cycle, pre-medicated with uh, on Dancitron. In this trial, they kind of de define sensitive disease as a two-month interval from the last platinum um, and refractory disease as less than two months. But similarly, we saw that the response rate in the overall population was about 20%. And then when they broke it up by sensitive disease, it was closer to 23%. And you know, refractory disease, 13%. Uh, an interesting thing to note in this trial that was that they did look at uh, CNS response in some of the patients who had baseline um, uh, measurable disease, and they saw 38% CNS response. Small numbers, but again, looking at some of these older agents. Um, time to progression in, in either cohort was less than two months. So certainly things to improve upon. With temozolomide, there is a, a good amount of hematologic toxicity. So another dosing regimen was looked at. Now this was 200 milligrams per meter square per day for five days of a 28-day cycle. And again, it had similar response, you know, uh, numerically. It was 12% response. Uh, there were fewer dose delays due to cy cytopenias. It was generally better tolerated. Um, importantly, when you're comparing these numbers, there were maybe more sensitive patients in the 21-day uh, cy cycle um, trial, but again, small numbers um, and certainly things to improve upon. So there are a number of, of, of regimens listed on NCCN, and, and you can see, um, as Dr. Sands referred to earlier, that a lot of times the way that we classify these are less than six months and greater than six months. Um, and there is you know, a laundry list to choose from, but I know that there's a lot of nuances in who do we choose and what do we do next. Uh, two agents that we really haven't talked much about are, that remain on, on this list are Nevo and Pembro. And I know certainly that those um, agents have had their uh, you know, FDA approvals uh, taken or rescinded, but there is maybe some utility in using these agents if, they, if patients have never been exposed to these in the first-line setting. So talking to our experts here, are there ever times that, you know, how are you choosing your second-line agents when, when you're looking at this list that can often be confusing when there's just a laundry list? Yeah, that's a great point. I, first of all, I just want to highlight uh, our edgy, do they reflect the latest data and modern care principles? Are the NCCN guidelines relevant? Uh, no, I'm being dramatic, but... Um, but I do think there's a lot to actually debate here. I mean, we still have Ben Damustine on here. We, uh, um, uh, so, you know, uh, um, 
the, the guidelines are often kind of an array of options too, um, and then and then narrowed down to specific recommendations. So l let me start with your specific question before I dive into the other aspects I wanted to discuss of that, which maybe I'm starting to lean toward. Um, so Pembro and Nevo, uh, I should point out that in the, where it says relapse greater than six months, preferred regimen, original regimen, that is without the checkpoint inhibitor if the progression happened on the checkpoint inhibitor. So in somebody who's on maintenance, a Tezo or Derva, at the time of progression, it's, the, it's going back to platinum etoposide, essentially, that that is the, the preferred regimen. Um, and, and then I'll come back to further comments on that in a moment. Um, Nevo, Pembro are on there based upon the single arm studies for each of those that did show responses and did show durability, but in a fraction of patients. Uh, later studies that were randomized did, were essentially negative trials when compared to uh, Topotegan in the set, second line setting uh, for nivolumab uh, and first line uh, Pembro study that, that Tusiana previously mentioned uh, were negative and therefore the companies pulled their applications for approval. But that, that j just because the applications were pulled is not to say that these are not of benefit to patients. And so in, so in someone who has not been treated with a checkpoint inhibitor, most commonly that really is limited stage uh, small cell that's treated with chemo, radiation, then at the time of progression, uh, I, I definitely would consider Pembro or Nevo. These are our home run drugs when effective. When these work, um, they can work for years and with limited toxicities. Now, of, of course, there are toxicities that can come up, and I don't mean to say that this is what happens for everybody, but the best case scenario setting is often on one of these drugs. And so if somebody has never gotten a checkpoint inhibitor, I actually feel strongly about making sure that they at least get the opportunity for that, because when it works, it can work so well. And, and I have patients with more than two years of disease control on Pembro alone as a next-line treatment option. And, and um, unfortunately, the majority of patients have progression. It doesn't work for everybody, all of that. But in the patients where it works, it is, it is really a total game-changer. I really just focused on the immunotherapy. I am happy to dive into more. But uh, uh, um, Tiziana, is there any aspect of this that sticks out to you as far as... Uh, the next line treatment options. Right, I, I do. I agree. I mean, I think this this uh, table is got a lot of options, and we reviewed the data. You know, we certainly can see that some of those options are still there because there is a potential benefit for selected patients using your clinical judgment in clinic. Is kind of my best sort of um, rationale for why they're all on there. I will say that the relapse greater than six months, having the preferred regimen as the original regimen, you know, I think these are consensus-based guidelines, but when I look at the lorbanectidin data that we currently have with everything that we have available, the data actually looks the best for the platinum-sensitive population. So I think if I have a patient in clinical practice who's had prior platinum atoposide, platinum atoposide atezo, and this was a patient that really struggled with certain toxicities that I would really be worried that rechallenge with carboplatin atoposide could be detrimental to their quality of life. I would certainly favor using lorbidectidin in that patient population um, in the relapse greater than six months. Um, for patients with relapse six months or less, I tend to favor using lorbanectidin or arenotecan. Um, I generally 
avoid tovotecan given the significant myelosuppression, especially if they're platinum resistant and they've had recent carboatoposide, myelosuppression is a significant problem. For patients who have had prior brain radiation and who have now progression, and I'm worried about CNS progression, um, I have had um, success with temozolomide. We have limited data with CNS, uh, with lorbanectidin, given that patients were excluded uh, in the lorbanectidin trial if they had brain mets. So those are sort of my own interpretations of the data. And as I treat patients and talk to patients and see their follow-up, kind of how it's molded my practice patterns based on my interpretation of the data. You know, although I agree with you, this is like the hardest to see a patient who has platinum atoposide and they have progression and never had the chance to get an IO. Then I go back and read the Checkmate 331 data, which was Nevo versus Topotecan, and it was stone cold negative. So although I agree that there is this unknown small subset of patients who may have a really great benefit from IO. I don't think it's the majority of our patients, and I think they only have one next step in terms of a treatment that they could benefit on. That being said, in that sort of situation for a patient that has small cell and has never received IO, I really try hard to get them on an IO combination trial with a new um, combination strategy through our phase one group or through our lung group and really try to push hard for an IO-based combination strategy, but try to stay away from monotherapy because I feel like the data really does not support, you know, Nevo versus something else. And in that sort of patient, I certainly would go to Lurbanectidin, go to Arenotecan, clinical trial with IO combinations, um, or a novel mechanism of action that we'll talk about some of the newer agents that are coming up. This is an important nuance. So I absolutely agree with you. The likelihood of responding to one of the checkpoint inhibitors is quite low. And so if I have somebody who has, who's very symptomatic, has bulky volume of disease, I'd be more inclined to uh, go on to one of the other chemo agents. Um, and uh, in someone who has radiographic progression, not really symptomatic, where I feel like we have some time, then that's the setting where I'd be more inclined to consider checkpoint inhibitor. I also completely agree with you as far as uh, platinum atoposide. I'll admit I'm actually not a big fan of platinum atoposide retreatment in general uh, because there is toxicity with platinum atoposide, um, and the likelihood of response is, or the durability of the response is not going to be as good in the next line as it was in the prior. And so we get less benefit. Now, that being said, you know, someone who has a year of control, I'd be that's compelling to you, you know, so this is certainly a regimen to continue to consider. I'll admit that it's not my personal preferred regimen. It's something to discuss. Um, and Lurbanectin, you're right, it, it, 20, there were 20 patients in the trial. This was published in lung cancer, 20 patients that had um, a chemotherapy-free interval of more than six months. Uh, so it's small numbers, but, but was even more compelling in that group as well. And then I'll just highlight for, for everybody, you know, this list on NCC on the guidelines is very long. We've narrowed it down to essentially about five drugs to discuss, and I think those are the most relevant ones uh, that are on the list. So going back to the case now, um, this is uh, a second-line maintained performance status, ECOG-1, five-month chemotherapy-free interval after progression on, on maintenance atezolizumab, uh, platinum atoposide atezo. 
Nisha, I'll ask you because you know we talked about Pembro and Nevo, yeah. but where do you where do you weigh in on that as far as a treatment option? Is this something to consider at all? Is this something that you, you, when would you use it if you use it? So if similar to what you guys have said, if they've never had IO, you know, if it was a limited stage and they progress, I might reserve it for third line, uh, depending on how quickly they are their disease is changing. Um, I will probably use, if, if possible, lorbanectidin um, if there's a quicker progression. So I, I don't use single-agent IO um, typically as my second line unless they've never had it before. And again, I would probably reserve it a little later. Yeah. And, and just to stress, in someone who's had progression on a checkpoint inhibitor, these are not options if someone's had progression on a tezoidurva. The question came up, does lurbinectin have activity in brain metastases? You know, the trial did not allow for that. Um, and, and it's not a drug where I would expect it to have good CNS uh, penetration. That being said, I have one patient that actually had a radiographic intracranial response to therapy. So I did have one patient with a response. That's not something I would really rely on um, and, uh, or, or consider likely. Um, okay. Um, maybe for the sake of time, let's go on to, to the other trials, and, and then we can have uh, more discussion pending time. So first of all, we're just going to start out with small cell subtypes, because I'm very hopeful that this is really going to offer a different framework for the field. You know, non-small cell lung cancer, we now have these various subtypes, and f even beyond the subtypes now is further genomic subclassifications. Within small cell lung cancer, this is a fairly new idea. Uh, this is something that came out of both Charlie Rudin's lab uh, at Memorial Sloan Kettering and Lauren Byer's lab at MD Anderson, both proposing pretty similar uh, subtyping. Uh, and this is actually from the, from the Charlie Rudin publication. Um, and, uh, well, let's dive into some of what the, these subtypes mean. I guess before I turn it over to you, I'll just uh, say that what, what you saw there are four IHC stains, which really correlate uh, with RNA-seq expression as well as the way that, that Dr. Byers had, had uh, separated those out. But four IHC stains, which describe four subtypes of small cell lung cancer, which have different features. Now, these don't seem to be as solid as what we see in the non-small cell lung cancer type subtyping that I described, so this is, a, is, is not entirely analogous, but may have real implications into defining uh, which populations are more likely to respond to some of these investigational drugs we're discussing. And if you could go back to that prior slide, yeah. I guess one point that I'd like to make in these four subtypes is, you know, they're really based on... Um, the RNA-seq data that you, know, that you mentioned, and there was a really interesting presentation at AACR 2022 where they actually did correlation between results from Gay's lab and from Rudin's lab and saw that their methods had very high agreement to differentiate between the subtypes that had neuroendocrine features, which is the ACL1 and the neuro-D1 uh, versus the non-neuroendocrine, which was the, the YAP1 and the POW2F3. Um, but in the sort of the non-neuroendocrines, they had the highest concordance. And so there was differences in terms of 
the percentage of subtypes for each one with the ones that had neuroendocrine differentiation. For example, in the Rudin lab, 84% had the type A, and then in the gay lab, lower in the type A. But similar results, for example, in the YAP1, which was about 8%. So it is something that I think is still evolving in terms of you know, concordance and how do we roll this out as we try to investigate these subtypes in terms of are these prognostic? Um, can we perhaps use these to really define who benefits from certain types of therapies? And so we've seen some exploratory data from both Empower and Caspian that we'll talk about. Uh, there is a result uh, from the Empower 133 looking at gene expression analysis in the long-term survivors really showing some trends observed um, uh, with the small cell lung cancer subtype I, or the YAP1. That's the inflamed subtype, the one without the neuroendocrine markers. And what they saw was that in the atezolizumab arm, 55% of the inflamed subtype were long-term survivors, and in the placebo arm, 30% were long-term survivor, survivors. And there was a higher percentage of the inflamed subtype um, were in the long-term survivors than non-long-term non survivors. So kind of suggesting that there's some enrichment of the YAP subtype in patients in the atezolizumab arm that were long-term survivors, but certainly this is sort of very descriptive, exploratory in nature, and the benefit really in the long-term survivors uh, they saw in the atezo arm benefit in all subtypes. But sort of that initial... Um, discussion of perhaps this inflamed subtype, which has the immune cell infiltrate, is this perhaps the subtype most likely to benefit from immunotherapy? And we've now seen this sort of similar theme in an exploratory analysis of the Caspian data as well. You see here both the guy, me the guy method and the Rudin method, where they saw, again, numerical improvements here in median OS in the Derva plus CP in the YAP1 subtype, which is the inflamed subtype. So certainly very interesting and exploratory in nature, but I think we really should start looking at this um, in uh, trials in a prospective manner. And then again here, uh, looking at this inflamed subtype, looking at inflamed uh, signatures with high T cell, longer survival in the Derva plus EP arm. So more to come on that, but I think this is an exciting time to really explore predictive biomarkers and perhaps you know, there might be something here and we're really looking forward to seeing more of this in prospective trials. Yeah, before we go on to that, there, there's a question here. Since RNA expression can change quickly, are these small cell lung cancer uh, subtypes static or dynamic? Um, and so, you know, there's, there's still a lot to learn about this. This is very much a proposal. Um, I, 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 this has really came from um, testing in labs. Uh, I think what we're seeing in practice, at least in early data, is that these are not static and that this is something that can change, as well as the fact that these maybe aren't as clearly distinguished uh, in, in real-world cases as they are in, in, these, uh, uh, in the lab, in the lines. Uh, and so there's still a lot to learn from this. I think this idea is a framework that we're very hopeful will lead to what we're describing as far as better describing uh, populations are using this as biomarkers for likelihood of response to therapies, um, but, uh, but it, it does, at least in early data, is a bit messier than, than just static uh, classification. 
And I think certainly that there's um, a lot of interest in, in the use of radiation and what is the role and timing of radiation with some of these novel IO combinations. So there are a couple of trials that are evaluating that. Uh, the NRG LU007, otherwise known as the Raptor trial, is looking at the role of, of radiation in extensive stage disease. So patients will get uh, platinum-based chemotherapy plus a tezo, and then will be randomized to either a tezo or a tezo to radiation. And this can be up to five sites that can be radiated. Again, they're using kind of moderate doses of radiation, anywhere between 30 and 45 gray, but will help answer that question of um, does consolidative radiation or radiation uh, after chemo IO add benefit. The trial is uh, phase two, three, so phase two is looking at PFS, phase three, OS. And then certainly limited stage disease, a lot of interest in how to utilize immunotherapy, and there are a couple of trials going on. Um, the NRG LU005 is looking at chemo RT, um, with the addition of immunotherapy with the second cycle of chemotherapy during uh, concurrent treatment. And then the Adriatic trial is looking after the completion of chemotherapy and radiation, uh, either using Derva, Derva Tremi, or compared to placebo to answer some of these questions of radiation and IO timing and sequence. Now, the Skyscraper uh, 02 study, this was uh, anti-TIGIT uh, added to carbotoposide uh, plus minus uh, anti-TIGIT. This is going to be discussed. And actually, the abstract is not yet uh, available for review. But, um, uh, but in a press release, this was a negative trial. I'm very interested to, to learn the details on this. And so this is, uh, I believe, on Sunday we'll see this. And this is uh, an ongoing study actually exploring a new agent in combination with chemotherapy and nivolumab in extensive stage small cell lung cancer. This is BMS 96, uh, 986012, which is actually, um, it's a, a fucosal uh, monoclonal antibody, anti-fucosal monoclonal antibody. You know, the fucosal GM1 is a gangliocide that is highly expressed in small cell lung cancer. And what we think that it does preclinically is that it, um, it binds to tumor cells and activates um, antibody-dependent cell-mediated cytotoxicity, increases T-cell anti-tumor activity, and then hopefully will sort of synergize with nivolumab. In the phase one, two experience with BMS and nivolumab, they saw well-tolerated that this combination was well-tolerated with the main side effect being pruritus, which was mainly grade one and two. And then they also saw really interesting response rates of this combination in patients with relapsed small cell lung cancer with an overall response rate of 38% and a median duration of response of 26 months. So this has led to now this combination strategy in the front line, a randomized phase two study of BMS in combination with chemo plus nevo versus chemo plus nevo. This study is ongoing. They are trying to do pretreatment biopsies, you know, to really look at expression of, you know, the, the, the marker and really trying to see if they can really have a predictive biomarker there. But um, I, I do think that really hinders clinical trial accrual. And so, you know, this trial has been going on for a while and we really are looking forward to seeing some of these results. 
Not just hinders. I mean, interestingly, I think it also shifts the population that you're enrolling. I mean, within, the, within small cell lung cancer, you have many who are very rapidly progressing, and those patients are less likely to end up on, on the trial. Um, SWOG is doing a phase two trial looking at the addition of talazoparib in patients with SOFIN11 positive uh, disease. So again, this is in the maintenance setting after four cycles of chemo immunotherapy. And what preclinical data suggests is that when you have DNA damage response inhibited by PARP inhibitors, it can lead to PDL1. Um, expression and T cell reengagement, and typically, um, soften 11 seems to be a predictive biomarker of sensitivity to PARP inhibitors. So that's the rationale for kind of doing a biomarker specific maintenance approach. So just to briefly touch on others, there are some interesting questions here I want to get to. I know we're, we're running out of time. So uh, I'll just mention there's the resilient trial. This is liposomal arinotecan, um, and, and you see uh, some data there with responses. Bispecific T-cell engagers, tri-specific T-cell engagers. Uh, this is an exciting category of drugs to me where um, really the, you know, the immunotherapy responses that we get, these are really the most durable um, and, and um, we're currently enrolling to a tri-specific trial, we're opening the uh, AMG 757 uh, study, and we do have uh, data from that last year, and you see the waterfall plot there at the top with responses to therapy. Um, most of the toxicity is really cytokine release syndrome, and so these, these studies do require admission to the hospital, at least in the beginning uh, but, but for patients that do well, um, then that can, can then be done as an outpatient. Um, aside from cytokine release syndrome, generally very well tolerated. Uh, and then lurbanectidin, there are ongoing studies. This is the Lagoon trials, combination lurbanectidin plus arinotecan uh, versus topotecan or arinotecan, so another ongoing trial. But I want to get to some of these questions before time runs out. So um, here's an interesting, well, first of all, actually, just because this was brought up about subtypes uh, again, um, is it standard to search among small cell lung cancer groups and adjust the therapy accordingly? Let's say this is not a standard of care. There are centers that are now, as a standard, doing these IHC stains uh, and subtyping and categorization, but that's not really part of what I consider uh, a current standard practice. Um, uh, but this one I want to get to. So the terms chemo-resistant and chemo-sensitive, does that still hold in the IO era? You know, of course, those come from when platinum atoposide was the only treatment. So now a patient who has maybe some control with checkpoint inhibitor, how does that impact how you categorize? Do you shift your categorization? Uh, what, what time frame do you use to define um, your, your platinum sensitive? So I, I think the term platinum sensitive, platinum refractory, as you can tell by different definitions and different studies, is not well established. Um, so I think from a, a clinical practice standpoint, we've just decided to come um, to consensus that we're going to call platinum refractory, you know, six months or greater uh, platinum sensitive, less than six months platinum refractory. But I think, you know, that is in itself a definition that is really not well established. Now, we're opening another sort of uh, a door there about how do you define IO resistance. We're still kind of struggling with how to define that in non-small cell. And, you know, certainly I don't think we have it well established what is IO resistant in small cell. The issue with small cell is because we're using it in the maintenance setting, you know, you're seeing patients having progression 
at the six-month mark. So if you think about that, that's the median PFS of these regimens, Atezo and Derva. You know, you see that the, you know, majority of the patients are unfortunately going to have median PFS of about six months. So they're actively progressing on IO maintenance therapy. So in that situation, they're essentially IO refractory in my mind clinically, and then it's time to move on to another combination or another strategy or a novel clinical trial. The question came up, is there rationale for combining lurbanectidin with trilocyclid? Now, we didn't really talk about trilocyclid because we're more talking about cancer therapeutics, and this is, but this is a supportive therapy. We didn't really go into GCSF either, I, I suppose. Um, but um, either of you, any comments on, on uh, trilocyclid in the last bit here? <laughs> Not bigger. So I'll just well, I'll say, tell so, you what I, yeah. you know, we've seen the pooled analysis data, and it's included combination strategies in the front line. So carbotope, you know, immunotherapy <laughs> with uh, the CDK4-6 inhibitor, which is trilocyclib. It has approval in the front line as a myeloprotective agent. We've seen the results of the pooled analysis that included, you know, phase two studies of carbotope, um, atezo, plus trilocyclib, carbotope plus trilocyclib, and then topotecan plus trilocyclib. So it has a myeloprotective effect. It doesn't interact with the other agents in the sense that it doesn't seem to add or cause detriment in terms of PFS and OS when you combine it. So I would think that, you know, if you combine lurbanectidin with trilocyclib, um, certainly the rationale would be similar that it would have a myeloprotective effect. That study has not yet been done, but I've heard of investigators that are interested in doing that study, so perhaps it's coming. Yeah, so trilocyclib is approved for platinum etoposide, also approved for topotecan. This has been a lot of fun. Thank you. Thank you to uh, my colleagues for joining. Thank you all for attending. This activity is certified by PVI, Peerview Institute for Medical Education. Remember to download the slides and practice aids. Thank you for listening. Download materials and complete the post-test for instant credit at peerview.com forward slash VDU 860. This program is supported by an independent medical education grant from Jazz Pharmaceuticals.